This week on the Gary Hour. Sometimes people say to me, oh, you can't skip the line. You know, you gotta, you know, it's just like people saying about politics. Oh, you gotta first be a congressman, then a senator, then a vice president, a governor, then a vice president, and a president. Uh, no, if you're if you're good at understanding how to skip the line, like Barack Obama was, yeah. um, that, that skill set of skipping the line applies to many areas, but you can if you know how to do it. I'm asking this selfishly because I'm expecting a kid at the end of August. Oh, congratulations! Thank you, my first. Um, are there well, any? Your, you, your life is just gonna suck. <laughs> there is nothing good about having a baby. Are nothing. you serious? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like, tell me something good. Nobody's successful when they're first starting because, by definition, they they suck when they first start. You need experience to be better at something. So you have to have some some kind of weird confidence that makes you think you can be better when there's no evidence whatsoever that you can be. Right. And and so there's a certain persistence, a certain what Nassim Taleb would call anti-fragility. Like what How about you? a bit of delusion? Yeah, there's got to be, there's certainly got to be delusion. G, 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 take me away. Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I am your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talked to James Altucher. If you don't know who James is, he is a best-selling author of a couple books. He has an extremely popular podcast himself called The James Altucher Show, where he's interviewed Richard Branson, Sonia Sotomayor. He's had pretty much everyone on his podcast. It's really popular. And uh, I listened to it, and it's really good. So check that out. He's also an entrepreneur a couple times over, which you'll hear about in this podcast. But he made millions, then he lost it, and then he made millions again. Not an easy task. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, a podcaster, a voiceover artist, Go to any app store and search for Future Moments because there's an app there that'll make your life easier and your productions so much better. I really enjoyed this conversation with James. I hope you do too, and I think you'll get something out of it for sure. Check out the show notes for links and go to GaryGaryLevitt.com for more info. Thanks for listening. I know we have so much to talk about, so I had to make an outline. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No problem. And Gary, by the way, thanks so much for having me on the show. I am. I am really grateful. Happy to be here. Thank you for doing it. Um. All right. First of all, you have personally reinvented yourself so many times. In the early '90s, you started as an IT in the IT department of HBO. Then you somehow ended up hosting a show. Well, here's what happened. I was. I I went to undergrad and grad school for computer science yeah so i wanted to be an academic i was thrown out of grad school um and then i wanted to be a writer i wrote like four or five unpublishable novels in my early 20s why'd they throw you out of grad school because I, I i suddenly mid grad school decided i wanted to be a novelist and not 
an academic. I didn't admire. You have to admire the lives of the people in the profession you want to be in. Yep. So if I wanted to be a professor, I had to ask myself, well, I'm around a lot of professors. I'm in grad school. Are, do any of these people have a life that I would see myself leading? And the answer was no. I didn't admire the lives of any of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I admired kind of the the creativity and the freedom of of novelists. And I loved, of course, reading and storytelling. And uh, so, so I became obsessed. I always become obsessed. I became every day I wrote from waking up to going to sleep. And of course, that means I failed every single course I was in in grad school and they threw me out. But were you worried about the financials of it? Like, how am I going to make a living? Because doing IT department, you're pretty much guaranteed well, well, to make then, some. Then I, I wasn't in IT department yet, I was, I, but I was a programmer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had the skills. I was undergrad computer science. Practical skills. Yeah, I had, yeah. I had, I had skills uh, for, for computer science, and I wasn't making any money as a writer. Any kind of creative endeavor requires years of work before you start making any money, and risk. then making a living, then making wealth. Yep. But with software, it's a little easier. You can make a living automatically once you know how to program. So, And there's a lot of people who don't know programming but make a living programming. And I, you know, meaning if you know, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You can get a job as a programmer with a little knowledge. Yeah. But I was already a good programmer. Like I studied it. I programmed for thousands of hours since I was a kid. So I was a technologist at heart. But then I became obsessed with something else. And so whereas previously I'd been obsessed with programming right. and I started writing every day. But to make ends meet, I would take like a job as a software programmer. And again, for me, it was easy. So I'd have to work like 15 minutes a week. Nobody knew, you know, how much I was really working. And um, it's good thing about being a computer programmer at most jobs, not in Silicon Valley or let's say a bank in New York City, but most other jobs as a programmer, no one knows. You're not you're not doing rocket science, so it was it was easy for me. And then I would spend the rest of the time writing. And then I figured, you know what? I'm not publishing everything. Anything. I didn't think. Well, I'm still in in my ten thousand hours of learning as a writer. I didn't assume I was just sucking as a writer. How I, old were you at the time? Uh, twenty six. Okay. At at the last, from 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 twenty one to twenty six, I was writing every day and and learning i was reading and writing every day so i'd write three thousand words minimum a day and i would read minimum for two or three hours a day what were you writing about i mean you could you you have a bestseller choose yourself which is like how to be successful right basically but uh when you're 21 to 26 i was writing uh, novels right okay. so i and yeah what I, I had no life experience so what was i writing about they were shitty novels okay. that was <laughs> fiction yeah i was i would read a novel that i liked and then i would think oh i have an idea uh, and I'd be inspired. Whatever I read last would inspire whatever I was writing that day. And so my novels would take twists and turns that mm. were sort of unbelievable. Moby and, Duke. Hmm? <laughs> Moby Duke. Yeah, yeah. It's just crazy stuff. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, I wrote probably dozens and dozens of short stories. And I could tell by the end of this period, I was finally, there was a difference. I was finally like, ah, oh, I would look at well, a short story I wrote. Not a novel, but a short story I wrote. And I would say, ah, oh, there's something different happening like i could tell a muscle was being you're, you're developing yeah and and so i figured but you know what though i'm in i was in pittsburgh because that's where i went to grad school and uh, uh uh i figured i need to move to new york because that's where the literary industry is 
So I had two offers for jobs, uh, JP Morgan and HBO. JP Morgan, to be a programmer, to be in the IT department. Yeah. JP Morgan offered uh, 80000 a year, which I thought was like, oh my God, I'm going to be super rich if yeah. I take that. HBO offered 40000 a year, which I also thought, oh my God, I'm going to be super rich <laughs> yeah. because I had never, that was like practically double the salary I was making as a programmer in Pittsburgh. And I turned down the JP Morgan one, even though it was twice the money, because one you know, sounds incredibly boring and the other one sounds a little bit more adventurous. You know, the, the programming for each was probably equally boring, but I loved HBO. You want to... It's a different wanna, environment. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the, the TV. I didn't know anything about the brand of J.P. Morgan, but HBO represented something to me. It was quality. It was the best storytelling on TV and it would get me a little closer to what I wanted, which was to be a success in, in writing. And, you know, money, you know... They, the reason somebody offers you more money is because they're they're not paying you for the work you can do. Else, why was one place offering me forty and the other place offering me double that? You know, it was, the, it was for the same quality of work. Right. They're paying you so that you forget your dreams and do their dreams <laughs> instead. So that's part of the salary of right. any salary. So they're but, buying your soul. Is that yeah? What? Exactly. And sometimes I've sold my soul, and I I I, I often regretted it, but. Um, but this time I didn't, I, I figured, look, I'm going to be just as, as fine on 40 as 80. Previously I'd made 20. Right. I didn't realize on four, then that New York city was so much more expensive, but, uh, uh, like I, you really can't live even then you couldn't live in, in Manhattan on, on 40, but I did want to work in the entertainment industry and I figured it would be a, a foot in the door for my writing. So I took that job and, and. How do you finagle from the IT department to hosting your own show on HBO? So, so, so HBO didn't have a website. Mm -hmm. So uh, nobody had a website then, by the way, it was 1994. Okay, yeah. And uh, I pitched HBO to do a website. And I said, look, just like you have original programming, original TV shows that you made, you're not just buying movies. And mm -hmm. HBO, people don't really remember, HBO was the first channel to make their own original shows, the first cable channel to make their own original shows. Um, I said, do original web shows. And they're like, hey, we don't know anything about this web stuff. You're young. You you do it. And um, so I started doing a, uh, an original web show, uh, which they paid for for me to shoot. So then the HBO documentaries liked what I was doing. It was a show about what crazy things happen at three in the morning on a Tuesday night in New York City. So and, you're just wandering around with a microphone and a video camera? Yeah, and just and just like I turned over every rock in the city for like three years. Uh, and this every, is in the was, 90s. There were still actually maybe some prostitutes and drug dealers on the street. Yeah, everything was... I mean, the eight, the 70s, I grew up around here and, and in and around New York City. So the 70s was obviously the worst in New York City. Or best. It was scary. Yeah, or, or the best. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm, I'm not nostalgic for it. Like yeah. having grown up around here, it was bad. Like I was, I was scared whenever I was by myself as a kid in New York. Right. And even in the 80s, up to like 88, 89, I was scared walking around New York. But the 90s... Sometimes I was scared, depending on the area, and obviously now there's no area to be scared in. Yeah. But the '90s, there were still interesting things um, happened in that sense. So I can go to the Meatpacking District, and there was transvestite prostitutes, drug dealers, mm -hmm. and of course their customers. I can go to the East Village, and there was homeless. There was, you know, young kids doing crazy things. Quality entertainment everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and. I built up a real skill that I must have interviewed. So I, so I, then I would, on the web, at least, it was a web show, 
at, uh, at the beginning and I put up, I would interview maybe 20 people a week. I would pick the best five, four and I would have a designer design and get a transcript, you know, cause you couldn't really download video then. I'd very rarely would I have video and, um, uh, you know, bandwidth, what speeds weren't. Yeah. People still kind of on dial up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, I, I, I would put the best interviews up and of course they were always scandalous and interesting and I would write uh, kind of intros and some commentary. So finally I was like a writer for HBO mm-hmm. and uh, so that was like a credit. You know, I should use that credit in comedy. Totally. <laughs> so, wrote for HBO. Yeah, you've, you you've, you might have seen him on HBO and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, You were I, streaming video before Netflix. Yeah, you're, you're it was kind content. of yeah. it was kind of the first podcast mm-hmm. in a weird way like right. i was interviewing you know prostitutes drug dealers their customers homeless all sorts of i went out to Rikers audio, island audio only uh uh i had some video did, occasionally okay. do video but there was there was some audio and then it was really though transcripts and i would design i had professional designers mm-hmm. um different designers each week design the interviews um the pages for the interviews and it was a beautiful site. It got mentioned in Time Magazine as one of the best sites on the internet. And um, did you feel a bit like maybe this was just uh, research for your writing, like you were kind of a Burroughs character? A, a little bit, but I love the concept too. Like I wasn't a night person, and I realized, oh my, I was missing something. New York City has this in, these incredible stories at night, yep. and there was almost like a religion of for the people who are always out at three in the morning on a, like if you were there's no reason to be out at three in the morning on a tuesday night for most people most people have to go to work the next day or go to school the next day so if you were out on a not a saturday night but a tuesday night at three in the morning there was a reason and it probably wasn't a good reason <laughs> and so i would the, the, so the kind of people who regularly were out at that time it was like they were night people it was a different way of thinking they weren't day people yeah and so i was fascinated by the concept and so then I wanted to make a TV show. And how many people in the crew? Uh, it was me, a video person, a photographer, and a, a PA, like a, uh, an assistant, like a production assistant. Yeah. And that was it. And mm-hmm. for a while we had a bodyguard. But then one time we were in this like uh, transvestite club on, on 11th Avenue and 42nd Street. And we were kind of undercover interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And like, why are you here? You have a wife and four kids in New Jersey and we're finding you here at three in the morning. And, uh, uh, so a bodyguard was like, Hey, you know, and then we ran, uh, you know, a security guard at the place kicked us out. But then the bodyguard we had hired to accompany us, he was running faster than anyone. He was like three blocks ahead of us. Uh, so I never used the bodyguard again after that, but I did that for three years. Uh, so let's say 150 weeks interviewing 20 people, a week. I never once missed a week. Uh, so that's that was 3,000 interviews. And I remember the first time I did it, I was scared to death because you have to just go up to somebody, a complete stranger, in the middle of the night in New York City, which yeah. is a little scary, mm-hmm. and then say, hey, can I talk to you? <laughs> like, what are you doing? And like, sometimes it was couples arguing. Uh, sometimes it was people doing illegal activities. So sometimes, you know, occasionally the violence was threatened or things were thrown at me or I'd have to, many times I had to run away from the situation. Um, Not like run metaphorically, but really run. And, uh, uh, and my, my crew would always stay back until I was comfortable with the Did this ever, did this ever kind of tempt you into the dark, darker side of the world? Like you wanted to participate? No, because you saw 
because everyone is honest, awesome. there's a certain honesty at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, in a weird way, there's all this weird, even illegal activity happening, but there's a certain honesty, and this is actually an interesting topic to write about. Like, during the day, most people are filled with shit. Like, you go they're work at a... Uh, yep. Yeah, there's a million people working in Midtown Manhattan, and they're all filled, filled with shit. Like, they're all just kissing ass to get promotions and mm-hmm. higher salaries and get sales. But at, at night... There's no reason, even like a drug dealer or a prostitute, there's no reason for them to lie to me. Like, I wasn't a customer. Right. They were just telling me what the way it was at, where, where, you know, what was going on. Their masks are off. Yeah. And, and you saw the reality, which is a, you know, almost 100% of the time they came from really deeply troubled childhoods, like deeply troubled beyond anything we could imagine, uh, even if it was told to us. And, and B, they hated everybody. They hated their customers. Not like a prostitute was like, oh, I can't wait to meet the man of my dreams, yeah. you know, on this street corner. Uh, and, you know, and then I would go out to Rikers Island. There was a bus that would go out there at three in the morning and well, nobody was happy on, on that bus. You just see like kind of this other side of things. But again, there was this, this honesty about it, which, which I appreciated and which I learned a lot. But I really learned a lot about interviewing then. And also, you can't, I learned, you have to be, you have to, I had to learn how to be likable within the first two to three seconds of talking. Which is great for stand-up comedy. Yeah, I was just going to say, as you know, that's a critical skill. As many professional comedians have told me on my podcast, likability is an even more important skill than humor. Right. So, like, I'll take an extreme example. Dave Chappelle is, of course, a very humorous, funny guy. He's also extremely, extremely likable. Like yep. you, you just like him, yep. and he just goes up there and he's laughing. You just want to laugh with him, mm-hmm. and so he'll tell jokes that I could see nobody is getting, or it's just an interesting observation. There's no punchline, right? But he'll start laughing. And he'll hit his knee with the microphone. He'll back up like he just told the best joke in the world, and yeah. the whole audience is laughing with him, even though it's like, okay, that's an interesting observation. It's not. The funniest knock knock joke I've heard in ever, but it's it, but, but yeah. you know likability is is more and, and if nobody likes you, nobody will laugh. Right. Period. And an audience decides this in split seconds when you first walk on stage. Yeah, the audience is an X-ray machine, so the audience can see immediately: Are you a beginner? Or are you a professional? Mm-hmm. The audience can see immediately: Are you confident? Are you just trying stuff? And adults do not want to see other adults try things right <laughs> adults are paying to go to a comedy club because they want to see comedy they don't yeah. want to see you trying to 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 they don't want to see you checking off your bucket list have you they, heard this theory that uh people with narrow faces like mine <laughs> are less likable than people with fat faces like, uh i have not heard that but that's interesting yeah there's that thing in our culture of I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but the fat jolly guy, we like yeah. him, Santa Claus. You know, well, then the evil guy always has like a narrow face. But I wonder how they did that study because I do think guys who are heavy are funnier than guys who are skinny in general. Not in every case. Like right. Dave Chappelle obviously is is skinny. And now he's done, he's committed the horrible sin of getting like jacked. He's got muscles. Uh-huh. And I, I say that it's a sin because people really don't like laughing at the muscular guy. Yeah. But Dave Chappelle has transcended a lot of these cliches. But um, uh, I think fat guys, I shouldn't say fat, like heavy guys, uh, they develop a humor skill early on because that's their defense mechanism as a kid. So I wonder how this, any study that mm. says that, I wonder how they control for that factor. 
Right. So like there's a base level of humor that probably heavier guys or like let's say a midget or let's say I, I don't know if that's the correct word or not, but you know, other types of problems, those people have developed a humor in some cases those people have developed a baseline humor higher than the average person to as a as a defense mechanism. I think if you show all kinds of people a picture of a guy with a fat face and a guy with a narrow face. They'll say, I like that guy more. The guy with the fat face. I like him more. I, here's another one. Um, if you speak an octave higher, that's usually people think that's funnier than if you speak. Like, like think about Dave Chappelle and his recent specials. Yeah. I'm always using him as an example because he's considered the best comedian in the world. Now uh-huh. him or Louis C.K. or whatever your, your preferences are. But Dave Chappelle in a recent special, he sat down and he just spoke seriously to the audience mm-hmm. in the middle of his stand-up. Um, cause he was talking about what's going on in the country and he got serious. He went literally an octave lower when he was talking seriously and nobody was laughing. And then when he went back to comedy, it's an octave higher. Oh, that's and, interesting. And so, and so I only noticed that after someone told me the, the octave thing. Yeah. And I think I, when I'm doing public speaking or when I'm doing stand up, I'm almost, because I'm speaking a little bit louder, uh, my, my voice gets a little higher so I, I have that octave thing going for me yeah i think you've actively done that in stand-up uh i've accidentally done it and then uh-huh. someone told me about that <laughs> right so. okay so you have you have so many different identities we'll call them you reinvented yourself yeah so I, I, i'll have it i can just quickly list through them and okay then you yeah get, please so okay so uh uh you know first off i was a top young chess player as a kid i was new jersey's junior chess champion i was a master i was one of the best kids in the country for my age group Uh um then uh in terms of obsessions i'm going to skip other things but these are things where i would spend everything i list now i I spent at least eight to 12 hours a day on so chess then computers then writing then kind of this 3 a.m entertainment type stuff Mm -hmm. then entrepreneurship i started a business creating websites other companies our first client was americanexpress.com and then and then we we did every movie studio we did every record label we did all the gangster rap labels actually Mm -hmm. we did all their websites this was your company yeah my company okay Uh, i I want to get back to a lot of this but i I started while i was at hbo so i was an employee at hbo and i and i started a company a few blocks away because so many people saw what i was doing for hbo all the other entertainment companies said we want this right and so i could they i could have just giving them advice and kept rising up at HBO and I was doing well in the yeah. corporate hierarchy at HBO when I, I was succeeding there. But I started a company, hired people, twins. I stayed at my job for 18 months. And finally, when I had about close to, you know, over a dozen employees and, and we're getting to be over a million in revenues with my company on the side, I finally left HBO to full-time run my own company. Mm-hmm. And did but, you end up selling that? Yeah, I ended up selling that. Is that... When you sold it, did that give you enough money kind of That gave me well? so much money. I could, I, my children and my grandchildren could have lived forever without worrying about money. And then within three years of selling it, I lost every single dime. Like I, I, I never really went into debt or that, that's not totally true, but I had $143 left in my ATM as opposed to a year earlier from that point, having 15 million in my ATM. Okay. How old were you at the time? You sold your company. You got I sold 15. my company when I was 30. Okay. So you're a multimillionaire. At yeah. 30. Tens of millions. And then um, three years later, uh, three to four years later, dead, dead broke. I had to, what? I had nothing. What did you do with all this money? Um, well, 
I wish I could say I did fun things like, uh, you know, hookers and cocaine and all that and, and all that stuff. But and I tell people actually, you know, I was I got so during this time I got I really hated running my company. So after I sold it, I was really happy. Yeah. And I I I still had to work, but I just stopped going to work. I had a deal where I had to stay at the company for a year. Right. Uh, but I stopped doing that, and all I did I got obsessed. All I did was play poker. So there was various underground clubs in New York City, yes. like the Mayfair Club and the Diamond Club. The Mayfair Club, you might know, is is like featured in the movie Rounders. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then in the summer, I, I got a house in Atlantic City. I would take a helicopter to Atlantic City. So people think, oh, I get it. You you ga- you're a gambler. No, I was I, I was like a great poker player because I was a great chess player. I I. It was easy for me to transfer that skill to you're, poker. You're doing the math. Yeah, and, and lots of things. Just just being, you know, part of getting good at a game is having kind of a killer. It's like you want to kill the person on the other side. Yeah. So you get like... Also good for stand-up comedy. Yeah, exactly. You want to kill the audience. And also you learn how to study games. You learn to how to quickly find the shortcuts. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, the the hard way to get good at Scrabble is to have a great vocabulary. The easy way to get great at Scrabble mm-hmm. is to learn all the two-letter words, all the Q without U words, right. all the J words. The strategies to get more points. You, you know, in Scrabble, there's something called stems. So, no, again, it says nothing to do with vocabulary. There are six-letter combinations, like S-A-T-I-N-E, mm-hmm. where if you give me any letter or almost any letter, I could find a seven-letter word for it. Like, you memorize these seven-letter word less from these things called stems, which are these six-letter combinations. So, these... There, so so for any so I know for any game you give me I know how to find the shortcuts to become a master at that game. So mm. poker there are shortcuts as well. And I and at that time this is pre TV poker. At that time I quickly became very good. So I'd go around Atlantic City and I was the I didn't need the money at that time of course, but I had the, it was the equivalent of, I was of making a living. I could make money anytime you I hacked, wanted to. You hacked all these games. Yeah. So like <laughs> in terms of games, you know, chess. Go. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's the most popular game in the world because it's the most popular game in China. Um, chess, Go, Poker, Backgammon, Scrabble, Monopoly, uh, uh, Othello, Checkers, uh, all these kind of classic games yeah. I'm like the similar level at because uh-huh. uh, there's all the similar types of shortcuts. Uh, card games like Hearts. Uh, so uh, one skill from one carries over to the other. The skill, The skill of learning. Right carries over Mm -hmm. so in in, not some other skills like in chess you have to calculate several moves ahead you have to have that skill that doesn't really apply in poker so much it applies a tiny bit like if i if i make this bet he might think i have this hand so he might make this bet and then i'll do this so you might think a few moves ahead in poker but it's not like thinking 18 moves ahead do you still play um i played uh i i don't play seriously Uh uh that's that's the one problem of doing this is that once i stop like to really get back to a, a professional level it would take me a good six to 12 months of solid Immersion. study and play yeah. but when i sit down and play with professionals and just one you know i have a friend she comes over when i play one-on-one and she's a professional and is winning money regularly and some days i win some days she wins and we'll mm-hmm. play all afternoon but that's just on any one day i'm good enough where anything could happen but if i were to consistently play her i'm sure the professional would would win it would take me six to 12 months of study now to to really be at that level again. So you didn't lose your money gambling. No, no, I Where was making a living. 
helicopter so, rides to Atlantic City, all of them? <laughs> no, I mean, because when you when you have tens of millions, like a nine hundred dollar helicopter or an eighteen hundred dollar helicopter ride to Atlantic City, it doesn't really yeah. Uh, the, the and if your money's invested, well, and by the way, the helicopter ride would be eighteen hundred dollars. As soon as I sat down at the, I would go immediately go to the. I go on a Friday night, and I would go straight to the Taj Mahal, sit down at the poker table. The first hand, I'm either going to win or lose more than eighteen hundred. So right. the, the, the helicopter ride was nothing. Um, and I'm not even trying to brag, simply because at the end of this whole period, I had one hundred forty-three dollars left in the bank. But what happened was, is that when you make money like that. I everybody suddenly was telling me, "Oh my gosh, you must be a genius!" And you made this money doing the internet and technology. I was like the stereotype cliche of a genius, and I had the glasses and the wild hair, <laughs> Jewish, made money in technology. You know, you still do, right? Yeah, I, I, I still do. I use this actually. In I was an MC last night, yeah, and so I didn't really need to make new material. I was just riffing with the crowd, and I said, I said, I'm racially profiled. Like if you look like me. Everybody in the world thinks you're a genius. Like right, I could right. walk into any meeting, particularly a business meeting. I could walk into any business meeting and say the the stupidest, most bullshit things, and everyone will think that as was as long just as you genius. say it confidently. Oh yeah, which is no problem. Yeah, also <laughs> so, good for stand up. Yeah, comedy. yeah, that's a, that's a stand up comedy skill, definitely. Confidence. Um, and and it works. Like I've looking how I do, and also being a chess master has helped me so much. Even though neither thing has anything to do with intelligence, but people assume, oh, chess, you must be a genius. Being chess alone got me into college, got me into graduate school, got me my job at HBO, raised money for a hedge fund, raised money for other businesses. It's gotten me so much. Just people, you're a chess master? Oh, yeah, here's a check. Here's a job. Here's, well, of you're, course, you're getting into you're graduate You're exercising school. critical thinking, playing chess. Yeah, but believe me, Chess is not correlated to intelligence at all. Mm -hmm. Like, go down a lot. If you don't believe me, go to Union Square any day of the week, and you'll lose every game of chess. And the guys you're losing to, right. you know, it's like the hustlers. Yeah, they are not what you would call intelligent people. Right. Well, what is intelligence? You know, how do you measure that? Um, I think intelligence is an ability. Well, there's two types of intelligence. One is if you know a lot, right? So if you read a lot and you talk to a lot of people and you're open-minded and curious. You're going to know a lot of things, mm -hmm. and knowing a lot of things helps the other side of intelligence, which is an ability to be creative and problem solve and uh, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. There's many types of intelligence, I guess. And there's emotion. You know, we're not even talking emotional intelligence right. and stuff like that. But I'm just talking just in terms of sheer what I would consider, you know, someone who's smart is someone who both knows a lot, but then is able to take those skills and apply it to critical thinking and solve problems right. and, and then execute on them. You know, people think. Executing is different than coming up with ideas, but they're sort of the same thing. You can't execute unless you have ideas about how to execute. And and some people have bad execution ideas and some people have good execution ideas. And there's a big difference there. And there's people that can creatively think of solutions to problems yeah. without having to look it up and find it. Right. And now that is related to game playing a little bit. Like in just take chess or poker mm -hmm. as an example, the more creative player tends to win more games. Um, but... You know, there are other skills in, in game playing that are probably more important. So you just lavishly spent all your money? No, I didn't even do that. I, well, I did buy a big apartment where I spent millions of dollars. But here's what I did that was really bad, is that I thought I was smart. And so I thought that, and, and I had what I call the disease. I thought I didn't have enough money. I thought like, oh, I only made this and fucking this guy made a billion. 
I'm not gonna. Re- I didn't make enough. I'm poor. Right. I honestly thought in my mind, I had I had a disease. I was like a mental illness. I honestly thought I was dirt poor. And so, in order to make more money, you have to take big risks. Mm. And this is the main thing I've learned about investing and entrepreneurship. This is 20 years ago, um, but since then, these are the main things I've learned. Investing in entrepreneurship is not about taking risks. Many people think it is. It's actually not. It's far less risky than working at a corporate job, for instance. A corporate job is much more risky, and that there's nuances in that, which we can either go into or not. But the key with entrepreneurship and investing, which I learned the hard way by losing tens of millions of dollars, is to take, eliminate as much risk as you can. Also good for stand-up comedy. Yes. <laughs> Although that one, I, I, I need to understand the nuances a little bit more. But but yeah, you need to stack the odds. You eliminate favor. the risk of bombing. Yeah, so there's a couple... So let's riff on that for a second. Like, you eliminate the risk of bombing, for instance, by having likability, like mm-hmm. being self-deprecating Developing right away. your likability, yeah. Right, Doing, ha- having some skills in crowd work. So the crowd, they either have feel a connection with you or they're afraid of you so sometimes with crowd work they don't want to be called on right but if they sense that you're doing that you can slip into crowd work they're not gonna they're gonna they want you to do material and they're gonna laugh at, yeah. at your material and a, a laugh even if it's a fake laugh will trigger other people to have real laughs like laughter is viral the way yawning's viral yeah um so that removes risk another way to remove risk is to of course prepare so mm-hmm. so i i write every day for for stand-up uh, and and practice on stage. Another way to reduce risk is to watch a lot of comedy. So sometimes when I'm on stage, right before I go on, I'll picture myself as I'll feel like the personality of the comedian I was just watching. So I'll always watch like great comedy right before I go up. Mm-hmm. So I can, at, at the very least, if I feel something risky is happening, I could slip into that persona at least slightly. Oh, uh, that's your safety net. Yeah. Yeah. And then another way is, of course, if you know somebody in the audience, they're laughing, so that will tri- that mm-hmm. triggers that signals to the rest of the audience that you're likable. If at least one person likes you, my safety net is uh, I have an anchor in the audience. So if there's someone that I could tell likes me, that's the person I always go back to. That's my anchor. It's like touching a wall or something. Yeah, I have realized that. I ha- I guess I haven't taken advantage of that as much as I should. Because sometimes I feel like if I just focus on this one table, maybe the other tables are not paying attention to me. Right. But I do do that because sometimes it's just fun to to have fun with that one table that really likes you a lot. Seinfeld talks about this. He says that's getting good at stand-up comedy. It's not about taking risks. It's about eliminating the risk of bombing. Right. So his thing is if you know through experience that you have really good material, just stick with your material and eventually the audience will come back. Mm-hmm. I don't, in a 15 minute, that works in an hour long set. It does not, in an hour long set where everybody already knows you, that works. In a 15 minute set, that won't work. Particularly if in New York City, the style is a particular, a, a typical show is seven or eight comedians doing between five and 15 minutes each. Mm-hmm. And if they don't like you, they tune out because the next comedian's a few minutes away. So you can't always win them back. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of shows with Mark Norman that I've seen him, you know, he tests material out like all stand-up comedians do. And you got to test some new stuff. And then I'll, I've seen him lose an audience and I'll be like, oh, I'm bombing, all right. And then he'll pull out a joke that he did on Conan. Yeah. That he knows works. And then I'll win the audience back. Yeah. And then he'll try new material again. So so I think that does work. Like, I, I think every comedian does that. Like, if you have a joke that you know works... Even if you've retired it, mm-hmm. uh, I will bring it back because I know it will get the laugh. That's a, that's eliminating the risk. And you know the the thing is, 
you know, if, if something, sometimes I don't even know why something gets a laugh, but if you know something gets a laugh each time, yeah. you can always pull it out and use it. And you have to deliver it the same way. Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't deliver it like, oh, I'm going to repeat what I did on Conan. You have to do it now mm-hmm. in a good way. Like you have to, you can't, you can't think I'm just going to redo what I did. You, you have to still be in the now. But if you do the joke, if you deliver the joke well, but you, you can't, if you take the risk of changing the cadence or the, of yeah. the delivery, then you're not eliminating risk because maybe that joke won't work. Right. I know. I agree with that. And then, interesting. I mean, we could probably talk about specific comedians. I know. That's why I made an outline because right. I, I know this hour is going to fly Because we could talk more about like Mark Norman style versus other stuff. But okay. So so uh, <laughs> we we haven't even we've only gotten to my first outline. <laughs> So so okay. so the way I lost all the money was I thought I was smart and I started making huge huge investments. I was a big believer in the internet of all things. Smart. And so I'd make a huge huge investments on internet companies, but this was before the first internet bust. So even though I was ultimately correct on the trend mm-hmm. and I I I have one particular overriding skill which is I I, I almost sound like a bragging cuz the skill is meaningless if you do it like how I just get did it, it out now. This way you could be self-deprecating on stage. <laughs> so, well, I, I, I knew everybody was telling me, no, the internet's a scam um, because the internet bus happened, but I just kept throwing more and more money. I'm like, no, the internet is just going to keep growing. And I threw literally $15 million into internet companies, different dot-com companies. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I lost everything. They were all, they all fell flat in the bust. Yeah. And also I was a, just a bad investor at that time. Like, uh, you know, so, so, but then, that triggered something. Then I became obsessed. The next obsession, I became obsessed with investing. So after being obsessed with entrepreneurship for a few years, I became obsessed with investing. And um, I probably read two or 300 books on investing. I read everything I could. I learned, I knew every investing strategy. And then I wrote software. I brought in my computer experience. I wrote software and I took 70 years of data from the stock market and analyze and use wrote AI programs to analyze the data for patterns where in odd situations, certain trades would work a hundred percent of the time. Like situations you wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. would be like, boom, automatic trade. And like literally uh, I was dead broke and I needed to make just to support my family. I needed to take all of my money that I had left and make a hundred percent a month in 2002 which was at that time the worst year in market history since like 1933 right. or 32. And uh, uh, so it was very, so, and I, and I had a philosophy that the internet's going to do well and the stock market's going to do well in, in the long run. So I would, I would never bet against the market. And even though the market went down 20% that year, my software was making money almost every single day. Is so, this a uh, stock picker? No, no, that was later. That was later. Okay. So, so, <laughs> Uh, uh, but I included elements of this later. Um, so I, so using this, then I started a hedge fund. Uh, so I became in, the, I got in the hedge fund business. I raised money. I invested other people's money. I was doing really well. Then I knew so many hedge fund strategies. I started what's called a fund of hedge funds. I'm just going right through this. I started a fund of hedge funds, meaning people would give me money and I would invest in a variety of hedge fund strategies. Cause I knew at this point, because of the obsession aspect of doing 12 hours a day of something for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. I knew everything about every investment strategy. I knew all the hedge fund managers. I knew who were the criminals, who weren't. Um, and so I would invest uh, in the best hedge funds. And 
And then also, I, because I had all this knowledge, I, start, I started a writing career. So I started writing for the Financial Times, a column, the Wall Street Journal, the Street.com, Yahoo Finance. I started going on CNBC. So I had two careers. I was uh, making money as a hedge fund manager. I was making money as a writer. I started writing books, like like best-selling books in the finance space, totally in the finance space. Mm-hmm. And, and then I became a spokesperson for Fidelity. So I started giving talks around the country, making money that way. Um, so I started making, building a career mm-hmm. as a finance, as a well-known finance professional. And, um, and then I started another internet business, combining my interest in finance with my internet skills. So that was stock picker. And you wrote about how you gained a lot of that money and then lost it all. Yeah. So once again, I made all that money and then I sold it. Uh, right. and then I, and then I lost it. Right. And, and writing about that really kind of worked some something about that click people like that yeah so then what happened was this you know so it's kind of also has to do with stand-up comedy because yeah. it's like that self-deprecation yeah so what, what, what interesting so so again i've just been sticking with the obsessions i've left out some other stuff where i made and lost but but then what happened was i had made and lost so many times that i'm like and the market was crashing, and I get once again I was an optimist. So all all the newspapers got rid of me. All the TV stations didn't want to have me. They brought me back on later when the market started going back up. But everybody goes with the trend, uh, the not the trend. Everybody goes with what's happening right that moment. And I was an optimist, and everybody else was a pessimist. So nobody <laughs> wanted to talk to me. But I'm like, screw it. I I I'm just gonna write the pure honesty. So uh, which people in the finance business never do like people were writing me and like how could you admit this like you no one's gonna work this way with you again which was totally wrong but when i started just writing my story instead of writing about investments or finance when i started writing my story a my literary skills that i had worked on 20 years earlier started to really come out like i start i viewed myself as more of a story as writing stories than as writing about any one point. I was writing like what I felt were literary stories, mm. but they happened to be true about me. Right. And I would write about my failures. I'd write about being suicidal. I wrote about being suicidal yesterday. So I'd, I'd write this and, and do you think that you are? No. I mean, mm. I would write about when I was, when you were. Okay. Um, but, uh, I, I realized, Oh, the audience the demand for this kind of article and story and style, because I also, I also was writing very humorously. I would combine suicide with very humorous writing, or you know, I'd write about the time um, I screwed Yasser Arafat out of two million dollars. True story, and I wrote it in a very humorous fashion that was very self-deprecating. Like not only self-deprecating, I almost made it seem like I was committing a crime, which I wasn't, but it was like I put myself to the edge, and. But I write a lot of articles like that, and some people hated them. And would, I, I, I've experienced for the first time this phenomenon of having lots of people who liked what I was saying, and then the occasional, like people were saying, I was like the Charles Bukowski of, of finance or uh, entrepreneurship. Right. But then I also got this haters for the first time. Like people actually hated me. And, sign of success. Hmm? So that's a sign of success. I, it, you could, I, I could tell myself that. But I still didn't like it. Like it's really hard when people are writing ar- entire articles about how much they hated me. That's that's that comes with success. That's how you know you're succeeding when you see haters come. 
Well, it happens to me now. No one is on successful. a daily basis, like or at least a tweet or yeah, you know, once a year. You've made it. <laughs> well, once a year there will be. It used to be once a year. Now it's a little more than that. There would be an article hating me that every all the haters would suddenly come out and say, "Yeah, go, good for you writing about this this you know freak." Uh, and so, well, once a year that was happening since about 2011, and then last year was a little bit more. Um, and then this year it's like once a day there's at least something on some social media where mm-hmm. some guy says something and then it's really hard to like not respond because you can't respond to some stranger on the internet like right you know that's like the worst way to live your life yeah you know your life's over if you start doing that um like you're and you're, you're giving them power that they really yeah, don't deserve like and also just just strategically why should i lend my audience to them just, mm-hmm. they have no followers and they're and i'm the only one who sees them trashing me right why do i respond to that and lend them my entire audience block yeah do you block i do block yeah i always block and um and then they uh, there was a guy the other day who i would block he would start up other accounts and then i just muted so i can't see what he says he could see my stuff he doesn't know that i've muted him right so um but this happens every day um and if you could twist it in your mind and say well i that's a sign of success i try uh but and I also try out the other cliches and cliches are there because they're mostly true. But I try like, oh, they're jealous or this or that, because sometimes it's people I know and I can't I write to them like, hey, we're we're friends. We've been mm-hmm. friends for 10 years. How could you how could you all of a sudden like say I'm the worst kind of human being possible? Right. And that's, that's hard with friends. You think they're your friend and then sometimes you get some success. And instead of being happy for you, they're just like, yeah, jealous or envious. And so. I would say. I mean, again, like that happened to me Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> and what day is today? Wednesday. Yeah. So this happens. That happens to me like once a week. Again, sometimes more extreme than others. Sometimes people will be very public about it, and sometimes people will be. I'm like, huh. I just noticed this person is not my friend anymore. They're not. A friend wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's happened to me. It's happened to me with family members. Uh, family is sometimes the hardest because if somebody wanted to be a writer mm-hmm. and they've been working at it and suddenly you write a book that's a major bestseller mm-hmm. they and they start stop talking to you for some weird reason that has nothing to do with anything yeah you have to say well i guess they were jealous or something because this was yeah. a close family member forever my old band when we got our our european booking agent and i told a friend i was excited we're going to get to tour europe all over the place because oh i, I want to tour europe yeah, uh, right. Well, not, and also in in when you have relationships, you have to be very careful with you, you know someone's good for you if they're not jealous of your success. Like yeah. you cannot compete with your spouse or your romantic partner. Mm-hmm. Uh Chris Rock actually mentioned that on his last special, Tambourine, yeah. but it's 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 a truism that I've noticed through all my relationships. Like something is just bad news if your if your romantic partner is competing with your career mm-hmm. so and you can't have a friend that's going to be jealous a good friend will be like genuinely happy for you well what what's painful is when someone really is a good friend and you've been in the trenches together for years as a good friend and then suddenly boom they're not they're actively working against you yeah. <laughs> they're not even ignoring you they're actively working against you and it's it's just painful success people think oh when i'm when I have some success, because there's nobody's a success, everyone's looking for some success and they want it to keep increasing. Mm-hmm. No matter, you could be 90 years old and you want your success to keep increasing. You still don't view yourself as a success. But 
success is not about being happy. Like it's it's another kind of emotion, and there's a lot of unhappiness. How do you define with success? I define success as freedom, freedom of time. Yeah, so so I'll I'll say freedom of time as well, but in a different way. Um, I very much, you know, so I wrote a book called Choose Yourself, which is very much my philosophy of, of life in a lot of ways. But I define freedom as every day because nothing, nothing is, nothing is fixed. A river is always flowing. So every day uh, uh, you have to be making more or, or every week or every month, you know, some moving average of, of this more choice you have to be making more choices that are your choice than someone else's choice mm -hmm. so and then it, it doesn't mean you work for yourself or work by yourself could be you're you're doing something you love with a group of people but every you just don't want to be working at a job you don't like where your boss who you also don't like is making all of your choices for you and none of them you like right that's no the opposite freedom of, freedom. of choice right that's why a corporate job is often more risky than entrepreneurship so because your boss could fire you without in a moment's notice and most of the time you're doing things you don't like so you don't have that sort of well-being that comes with freedom and you're probably doing things you don't like mm -hmm. so it's and and your retirement might not be as predictable when you have a corporate job as opposed to entrepreneurship mm -hmm. so if you're persistent with entrepreneurship eventually and by the way you could be an entrepreneur and be an employee i have another book which is actually one of my i think one of my best books but it's Nobody ever reads it. It was like one of my worst selling books, but it's called The Rich Employee. It's how you could choose yourself while being an employee and, and be successful and wealthy and have freedom and so on. Um, and for some reason, that book I thought would be a success because most people, there's 100 million employees in the US, um, but people like, no, no, I want to hear about entrepreneurship. I don't want to hear yeah. about being an employee. Right. So they want the aspirational, not the, uh, yeah, that's me. Right. Right. But I tell them you could be an employee and love what you do and, and be successful, but, but, and also success too is freedom, but also doing what you love. So, mm -hmm. you know, last night I did stand up comedy for instance, I was the MC. So that's two hours, which meant probably three or four hours before then I'm preparing for it. So that's five hours, and then an hour afterwards, I'm like so wired, I'm unwinding from it. Mm -hmm. So that's six hours that I could have spent either writing or spending time with family or reading books or doing or looking at investments or whatever. But you, I love doing stand-up comedy, which makes zero money. Yeah. And, and really, there you, I can argue there's some benefits in other areas of my life, but not really. It, it does benefit other areas. Of it does benefit life. other yeah. areas. I won't argue with that, yeah. but I won't say that's the reason I'm doing it. I'm right. doing it because I just happen for obscure reasons. I wish I didn't love doing it, actually, but I love doing it. <laughs> yes. So that, that's like the latest obsession. Right. But Well, this, this is the personal reinvention that you've been having throughout your life. I yeah. mean, you're so many different people. Yeah, so like, so like after I lost this money on Stock Picker, I got, uh, and I lost that money not by investing, but I got paid for that company in stock, and the market crashed. That stock went down. I bought a big house, so I lost that money, um, you know. And I was, I didn't make as much money as I would have liked on the sale of that and business. Throughout this year, also a father and a husband. You're raising kids. Yeah, yeah. So I was really anxious and depressed and scared because I was going broke again. How old were your children at this time? Um, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, ages like they were pro on average, let's say around ten, okay. eight, nine, ten. Yeah. And um, how many? Two. 
Now I have two kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I have five kids, but yeah. Now you have five. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Through through marriage and okay. uh, uh, four daughters and a son, and uh, uh, so then I got obsessed with writing again, and I was writing all day long. I was reading and writing all day long. I moved upstate and living. I was living upstate, and I, so I had no distractions, and it was heaven. I was just. I, I became an angel investor, meaning I was investing in private companies. But I, by this point, I was a good investor. Again, mm -hmm. I put my 10,000 hours into studying investing. I had been a good hedge fund manager. I was a good investor. So, and I removed the risk. I, I only invest in private companies, you know, and, and I remove risk in so many different ways. Um, but I, my returns are probably close to 200% per year since 2007. Still. Yeah. Oh, wow. uh, my, this year is my best year ever as an investor. Are you still giving tips? Um, yeah, yeah. I have a whole business giving tips. So I'm an entrepreneur too. I have a whole business that, that is newsletters giving stock tips, but I don't do angel investing tips because okay. angel investing is what I do, um, personally, but because I do it personally, I don't want to have a conflict of interest, Right. but I use the same ideas of moving risk in, I could be a stock market investor. And I do a little bit because I, some of my companies that I invested in privately have gone public and now they're on the stock market. But the same principles can be applied to any kind of investing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, but I've done very well at that. But the thing about angel investing is, you know, particularly when I was just starting it, is you don't make money every day. Sometimes I'm in some investments for over 11 years. Yeah, uh, it's the I'm long game. Yeah, I'm meeting in uh, one of my investments tonight um at the comedy club actually and i've been in that one for 11 years and i don't even want him i don't want to cash the only way you cash out of a private company is if they sell the business mm -hmm. so i don't even want him to sell because the stock market goes up let's whatever seven percent a year he's doubling his business every year so why do i want him i wouldn't want him to start stop doubling where else am i going to put the money am i going to put it in the stock market or put it in a savings account with one half percent interest he's making a hundred he's he's improving the value of his company 100 percent a year so i i encourage him to to keep going but he's now thinking of selling which he should he's, he's getting older uh -huh. um, nobody wants to run a company forever yeah this is horrible um but anyway so i became obsessed with writing again and I, i've written on my website there's over three thousand articles that i've written since that time and then i started i got obsessed with podcasting we've done so many great and amazing yeah. bucket list moment podcasts you've had all kinds of people on your podcast richard branson i can't even count how many amazing people you've had yeah i mean from you know tony hawk was the world champion skateboarder sarah blakely is the the uh, most successful self-made female billionaire. Uh, uh, but it's not about business. It's about peak performance. So that's had on Gary Kasparov was the best chess player in history. Had on Coolio, who I think is the, was one of the best <laughs> rappers in history. Had on Tyra Banks, who's one of the best, not only was one of the best models, uh, but really became one of the best, most successful TV producers and personalities mm -hmm. in history. She had 29 seasons yeah. of America's Next Top Model when everyone rejected the idea at first. So all these amazing stories I had William Shatner, Henry Winkler, uh, uh, many comedians, like most of our favorite comedians yeah. uh, have been on the podcast. Um, yeah, Gary Goldman. Er Sonia Sonomayor is the first time a Supreme Court justice ever went on a podcast. Eric Schmidt, uh, chairman of Google, is about to come on the podcast. 
just came back from a podcast with Dave Bar- Barry, one of my favorite humorous writers and one of my favorite writers. In general. Mm-hmm. A lot of my favorite writers have come on the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, 500 guests, so many great mm-hmm. and interesting people. I've learned so much because my whole idea is I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to interview them like a journalist. I w- I'm my insidious reason for having someone on my podcast. I want to learn from them and then hopefully the listeners learn too. But I just want to learn, like, how did you do this? Like, what when you were getting over your crack addiction, like, how did you do that? Or Sebastian Maniscalco, when you were just starting to make money at Kami, how did you build it up? And, you know, what what's your technique? And how did you practice that? And, and so on. So, Is there a similar thread that you see uh, doing the podcast that you're hearing from successful people? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, and actually, I, I wrote a book about that that's coming out soon where I focus on the billionaires because that's what people are most interested in. It's called Think Like a Billionaire, but mm-hmm. the same principles apply to everyone I've interviewed, which is that there's there's a, a, a persistence. There's, you know, nobody nobody's successful when they're first starting because by definition, they, they suck when they first start. You mm-hmm. need experience to be better at something. So you have to have some some kind of weird confidence that makes you think you can be better when there's no evidence whatsoever that you can be. Right. And and so there's a certain persistence, a certain what Nassim Taleb would call anti-fragility. Like what How about are you? a bit of delusion? Yeah, there's got to be, there's certainly got to be delusion. Richard Branson was like 26 years old when he's like, and there was only one airline in England, British Airways, and mm. it was run by the government. So how can you compete? It's like... It's insane. And he was a 26-year-old magazine publisher. But he calls up Boeing and he says, can I borrow a plane? Can Mm -hmm. I borrow a 747 jet? Then he calls up Heathrow and he says, I got this 747 jet. Can I land it there? And then suddenly he had, uh, and he called up JFK, suddenly he had a route between Heathrow and JFK. And uh, he had an airline. He was a music magazine publisher you know, from the seventies, like, so who knows what else he was into. Yeah. And then he's like, Oh, I'm going to start an airline. That's delusional. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Blakely, she didn't know anything about fashion. She started maybe the most successful fashion line in history. Now Spanx people probably not surrounded by naysayers. You know, those people like, ah, you can't do that. Everything's been done before. Well, that's why in my book, choose yourself written in 2013, one of the most People always say, oh, I'm, I've lost everything. I'm divorced. I'm, I'm on the ground. I'm depressed. How can I get up off the ground? Can you give me a stock tip or a business strategy? No. The first thing is, you know, be healthy, 
because if you're sick, you're not going to be able to generate ideas. Yep. And then very important, people kind of skip this in the book, be emotionally healthy. Get rid of all the toxic people in your life, mm. even if it's a spouse, even if it's a family member, even if it's your best friend. If they're a naysayer or if they're competing with your career or if they're bringing you down in some way or if you have to go to too many parties with them because or else you're jealous or mm. whatever, yeah. uh, they're not good for you. You need... Everybody around you has to be part of the team. And just like you'll support them and their efforts and make their dreams come true, they will help you make your dreams come true. Like, And you look at all the successful, all 100% of the successful people in the world, 100% of the people on our podcast, none of them have toxic people in their life right. that they have to deal with. If your and, kid's a little naysayer, put them in foster care. It, well, <laughs> kids are always naysayers and you have to put up with kids, but... <laughs> But there's ways of dealing with that in parenting too. Like if, right. if they're going to be crying all the time, go to your room. That's what a, par- a good parent says. You don't <laughs> you don't try to pander to your kids just so they can be happy. Like um, you know you don't harm them in any way. But you, you did write a blog uh, post uh, advice for your daughter. Advice I want to tell my daughters. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm expecting. By the way, that one yeah. I, I, I uh, might have been the very first post in this style that i did i think i did that in either 2000 no i did that in mid 2010 it was the first post of that style uh meaning on a more on a more personal level yeah yeah and i and i really love that that pose it was the very first one i did like that and uh but i also wrote a post i've done a couple of posts like shitting on my kids i i did when my oldest became a teenager yeah how, how old are they now uh now they're well the two original ones are 20 and 17. Okay. But when my 20 year old was turning 13 and 14, um, she started to be like a teenager. So I wrote a, a post that was her writing a letter to me and in her tone. And, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it really made fun of her a lot, but, uh-huh. but she didn't care cause she didn't care about anything I did. So <laughs> she, but, was she offended by it? No, no, they, ne- they have never. Well, one time, one time I wrote something, about one of my kids where she said, daddy, she called me up. Actually, her sister called me up and she said, daddy, Molly really wants you to take that down. And I took it down and then Molly got on the phone and said, daddy, I can't trust you anymore. And so, you know, I didn't think it would bother her, but it did. But I took it down and no one one saw it. Um, I'm asking this selfishly because I'm expecting a kid at the end of August. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. My first. Um, are there well, any... your you your life is just gonna suck. <laughs> there is nothing good about having a baby. Are nothing. you serious? Yeah, really. Yeah, like tell me something good. Tell me, tell me something good that other people have told you. Like, oh, your life's gonna be so wonderful. It's, you'll never love a creature more than you'll love this little bag of shit. <laughs> First of all, thank you for the honesty because all you ever hear is, oh, it's gonna be so great. So thank you for saying that. From from and honestly, from the first second, mm-hmm. right? They give you. Like first, even before the first second, right? First off, your wife is constantly a drag right now. Like she's in pain. She's she's got morning sickness. She can't do lots of things she used to be able to do. Uh, and you look, you love your wife. I'm not saying treat her. She's not toxic. I'm not saying I'm not saying she's toxic. <laughs> Foster I'm, care to her. I, I'm just saying if you say something, her response is if she doesn't like it. She's going to say, I'm pregnant. Right. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, forget I said that. Rewind. <laughs> like, sorry. And then, and then she's in labor. Ever, you're, you have to be there, right? But she's the center of attention by far. Yeah. You're like, 
you're like sitting in the bleachers and she's Derek Jeter. So like, I, am I making a sports reference? Okay. Uh, and, 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 and then the baby's born. Like, so, so you really feel like what, what do I mean, I do? it's already like that. Now when I speak to a family member, it's like, Oh, how's Abby? Right. Wait, but like when you're, hello. when she's in labor though, it's like doctors and nurses swarming around. Right. Excuse me. Excuse me. Like you have to stand there for hours like you're just it's like going to like your later on when you go to your daughter's ballet performance it's like almost as bad as that like <laughs> you, you're just standing there doing nothing nobody likes to stand around doing nothing you want to be useful but what about the all the love it brings into okay your so life? then the baby is born and that's when everybody says oh you've never seen a more beautiful creature in your life and blah 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 you'll feel more love than you've ever felt before this is like your son or daughter but what happens is your your wife is still having medical issues right mm -hmm. so there's still medical things happening so they say hey can you hold this and they give you a baby it's to crazy hold. and you don't know i didn't know how to hold a baby it wasn't like like maybe for seconds here and there i held a baby but like i'm holding this baby that's crying and and squirming around and, and all your responsibility and is all bloody <laughs> So both times I, I thought I might like my, in your ear, they say, here, hold this. So you stick out your arms, right? So now you're holding something that's fairly heavy, right? Like it's seven or eight pounds and it might be an hour. You're in this position with your hands sticking straight out, holding this baby. Like you should start weightlifting now. <laughs> like, and your arms start to really hurt, but you're, I didn't want to do anything. Like I felt like the baby's so small, I'm going to break her arm or I really thought I like, was going to damage my baby or drop her or whatever. Uh -huh. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and, and always I thought I, I was damaging her in some way, like breaking an arm or breaking a leg. And, and then your life is just over. Like it's crying all the time. It's, you have, it's suddenly like you, you, your wife was a great roommate, right? Like that's why you got married. Yeah. Said, oh my God. She's the best roommate ever. And it's a roommate I'm having sex with. Yeah. Like, and we could, have sex in the morning have sex at night have sex during the day we could binge watch game of thrones if we want and we could i don't know oh let's get up and drive to montreal today you could just it's such an amazing roommate <laughs> then suddenly you have another roommate and this roommate doesn't speak english cries all the time shits all the time cries all night and then have you ever had a roommate that all of a sudden now she climbs in your wife's bed and and sucks on your wife's breast like this is a horrible roommate <laughs> And this, this is sounding like a bit. Are you, is this? So it's, it's slightly a bit. And uh, I didn't. And so, yes, of course. Oh, this is my daughter. I love her. And I really did feel love. And I remember when my second child was born, I was. You did it again. You no, but, have... I, but I was really sad. Like, I thought, how can I love a second child? When, when my wife was in, late, in, in pregnant, I really thought, how can I love a second child as much as I love my first? Because I really loved her. And But, of course, you love your second child just as much. And, and there's never, there's never a competition. Like it's always, you love these two very equally, but they suck. Like you go to ballet. I have never, who wants to go, what adult, what male adult wakes up and, and says, you know what? I really want to drive 70 miles today to watch a bunch of 13 year olds perform ballet. You don't, there's no like sense of pride or amazement that, that you created yes. this thing. And the three seconds during the three hour show, the three seconds they are doing ballet. I feel that. But that's three seconds out of three hours. And the other two hours... Well, that's like stand-up comedy. You have a great set. It's an eight-minute set, and it gets you through the whole night. Yeah, but it doesn't... <laughs> no, no. Like, the comedy does get you through a whole night, like a great eight-minute set. 
ballet i just watched my kid on ballet can i go now no because there's the final performance where all, yeah, that's how they keep the parents all the kids participate in the final performance you can't leave right so <laughs> i gotta watch all this oh i hate ballet i hate ballet music it's not like you're watching professional ballerinas they're the worst ballerinas on the planet and it's just horrible <laughs> so, wait, so are you saying that if you could do it again you would not no I, of course i love my kids and now i have five kids i'm so happy like to have such a great family life and right everything. but now my kids are kind of bordering on being adults so and wh a different... what do i do i'm getting mixed messages here what do i do <laughs> nothing man you either it's not a horrible thing to not ever have kids like then you don't know one way or the other right and you still have that kind of freedom of not having kids but kids teach you so much and mm -hmm. you know it's not you're not supposed to be happy all the time like you and know, you only regret the things you don't do uh, there you go <laughs> and uh you know i i regret sometimes that in the 15 years that I was so, or 10 years I was so depressed and anxious about money and losing and frightened and scared. I regret I didn't spend more time with them because the ages of like six to eight are really great ages, mm -hmm. you know, and the ages of like 11 and 12 are really great ages. Like I, I have such great memories of my kids, like 11 and 12 and six to eight. Mm -hmm. And of course, even now I just went with one of my kids to, I took, she wanted to go on a business trip with me, which was great. And, um, uh, we went to London and Paris and we, it's like, oh, so fun to like spend mm -hmm. this time with my kid. And um, so there's some things that are just great. Uh, you have any brothers or sisters? I have two sisters. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. I was getting an only child kind of vibe. From well, you. one's seven years younger, the other's nine years older. Okay. So I, I essentially was raised as an only son, mm -hmm. you know, because the other two were so far apart. Yeah. One's a half sister, so I didn't grow up with her. The other, but we, we were very close. And then the other was so much younger than me. We didn't really, mm -hmm. you know, interact as much and uh, was that was having kids a big strain on your marriage before that it was yes yeah because i really did not want to have kids oh you didn't want them no i did okay. not but my wife did and i'm glad i did i am so glad i did right despite everything i just said <laughs> but uh i did not want them we'll, we'll edit that out no that's fine it's uh <laughs> it's the that's the truth it really is not pleasant there is nothing pleasant about the first year or two other than this amorphous like oh that's my kid i love her uh there's nothing that actually happens that makes you think oh my life is so much better now because i have a kid right like i didn't really start enjoying them in that kind of practical way until they could play games with me mm. and, and until they were good at the games <laughs> so like i would have to make up games that they could be good at that then i'm like oh this is fun right. So like chess they can never be as good as me at chess no problem so i would make up a game where just we would just set up the pawns no other pieces and whoever gets a pawn to the other side of the board first wins so that they could play and, mm -hmm. and it was fun yeah. or checkers could or i would make up card games that were, were were like mini pokers that could be fun besides the obvious what was the stress that it put on your marriage I did not want to take care of like a baby. Mm. I did not want to do it. Like, so she it, felt like you weren't carrying the weight. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I was busy losing all my money at that point. So <laughs> I had like work to do. And then I was busy being anxious and scared and depressed all the time and, and thinking, how can I make this money back? Was a lot of that you felt pressure because you were a father that you had? Yeah, to... probably. Mm -hmm. I probably would have. But probably the marriage wouldn't have survived either way. Well, what if you were just single and you're like, whatever, I don't need really anything. Yeah, then I would, uh, my life would have been a lot different. It would have been, a, yeah. yeah. So maybe it, it did serve it in a way because it kind of kicked you in the ass to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, with what's, like, what's the slogan? With necessity... Necessity, mother invention. 
necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So St- Steve Cohen, podcast producer and quote machine. Nice. Um, I know you have another podcast to uh, conduct. Who's you have a? Yeah, I have something on the schedule, right? Who you have a guest coming? I'm on someone else's podcast. Oh, okay. So I don't want to make you too late. Uh, so we'll wrap it up soon. But you have a comedy tour coming up in yeah. June. Yeah. So so we we barely covered like so much. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Because then I became obsessed with stand-up comedy. Right. So I became an entrepreneur again. That and now everything I do is better than the old version of it. So I'm a better entrepreneur than I used to be. You you started another company that you sold again. Yeah. Stock picker. That was in 2000. I started another company in 2015, which I also have sold. Uh, but now I know how to do it. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that I know now. I know how to start a company. I know how to build the right relationships I need. I know how to create more value for the company so it can get sold for a higher amount. Uh, I know how to have ongoing deals with whoever I sell to so I continue to do as well as if I'm still uh, uh, part of, you know, an, an owner of the company. Mm-hmm. I know, and, and and my investing skills are a million times better than they used to be. So mm-hmm. I, so everything that I used to do, I do better now because I, again, necessity is another invention I had to learn. Yeah, yeah. You have a lot of tips written on your blog for entrepreneurship, and I was reading through them for starting your own company, mm-hmm. and I was reading through them. I was like, I'm kind of doing this. With my company. Yeah. Like, cool. Like, don't hire people unless you absolutely really need to. Don't take investment money. Yeah. Which I'm so glad I didn't do. I was like, no, this is fine. I could do this. Right. Because now you have an income stream that's all yours. And if you had even one investor, there's going to, and even if they were a minority investor, there's going to be pressure. There's right. going to be, you know, you have to answer to them. And it, right. They become your boss a little bit, mm-hmm. not fully, but a little bit. And again, the goal is, you can't always do this. Like Uber, if you want to start Uber, you have to raise money. Mm-hmm. If you want to start like a major company, you have to raise money. Sometimes in order to expand, you have to raise money to hire or whatever or to build offices. But I think most of the time now, you don't really need... the. There's more venture capital money available than ever before, but there's less reason to raise money than ever before. Right. We'll get back to the comedy and this is like such a divergence. But what do you think of companies like Uber where they just spend so much money and they just lose so much money every yeah. year? So I think what's happening with with many of these companies, I don't need to call it any specifically, but with many of these companies, they're living on what I call VC welfare. Yeah. So let's call out Uber for a second. When you take a ride on an Uber, a venture capitalist is paying for part of your ride, is subsidizing mm-hmm. that ride, just like the government might subsidize you know, a farm. Right. But... Uh, uh, what happens when all that subsidizing runs out? We don't really know yet. Mm-hmm. Now with Amazon, you, you know, they were being subsidized for a very long time, 20 years almost, and then finally they started making a huge profit. Right. But it took them a lot of different business models. Amazon is not one company. It's like maybe a thousand different business and models. And their main money is their servers. Right? Yeah, like AWS, Amazon Web Services, yeah. makes an enormous amount of money. Which, by the way, was very smart. And I talk about that in my tips for entrepreneurship. If you have a way of making money, you can now meta that, which is what Amazon did, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, allow other people to piggyback on your infrastructure for how you originally made money. Right. So Amazon originally made money by creating a huge infrastructure for selling millions and millions of books and logistics and so on. 
Now they sell that as a service, the ability to have all this storage, the ability to sell things, the ability to use their logistics. Right. So that's genius. Like if you, if you, that's how you really scale to make a big business. I'm like, my mind's like, how do I do it with mine? How do I do it with mine? Cool. There's always a way to do it, one yep. way or the other. There's mm -hmm. like five different ways to do it, which right. Amazon tries, by the way. So Amazon did Meta in a different way. They built a website that has a large amount of traffic. So what do you do with that traffic? Well, let's put make TV shows and and right. the traffic is watching the TV shows, so we can sell subscriptions to that or whatever. However, they monetize it. Um, and of course, very initially, they were selling books. Oh, let's sell clothes. So that was the initial way they meta. Um, you know, they they took their business strategy and they meta strategy. Right. I have to come up with a better word for that. <laughs> it's kind of like a reskinning kind of. Yeah. Yeah, white labeling it. Kinda, yeah, something. But they did it in a lot of different ways, and that's how they be ultimately became profitable. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if their bookstore makes biz makes money. Mm -hmm. uh, they they've obviously diversified quite a bit. Yeah, Whole like, Foods now. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't. They do do foods, but I think the real reason they bought Whole Foods, and we talked about this in one of the podcasts with a really smart guy, Scott Galloway, is Whole Foods. You know, imagine. You know, Amazon, they deliver in one day because they have warehouses all over the country storing, you know, thousands and thousands of products. Think about Whole Foods. It's another 5,000 warehouses potentially. If they just mm -hmm. empty out all those Whole Foods or even empty out half of them, they have more space now to have a lot more products to get you products faster. So I think that was part of their strategy in buying Whole Foods. Right. Again, taking meta, the whole concept of Whole Foods. Right. So it's not just a place to buy food. It's a place to store any object that needs to be qu quickly delivered. Right. So with companies like Uber, just to use as an example, they're really kind of banking on the driverless car. It seems. Yeah, right. Because that's how they, they're setting up the whole infrastructure now. Right. The app, uh, the, the, the brand awareness, the, um, uh, uh, you know, you know, handling the transactions, handling problems, uh, the search between customer and driver. But then once it's driverless, boom, they save like 50% of their costs and, right. and then they might be profitable. And then that's where the profits come. Maybe. We'll see. Right. We Maybe don't really not. know yet. Yeah. So would you invest in a company that's taking so much uh, venture capitalist welfare? Not in the beginning, no. Because mm -hmm. mm -mm, then there's too much risk. And then I also won't have control. So in the beginning, you have a little more control. If you're part of a, let's say a, co a company values itself at $4 million, they're raising one million, mm -hmm. so four plus one, they'll be worth five million at, at the end of their raise. Uh, so now they have a million dollars in cash and four million dollars of equity, so they're worth five million in total. If I'm one of a few investors, I I can call the other investors. I know them personally, probably, and then uh, you have a little more control. I probably know the CEO personally at that point. A little more uh, sway in what's happening. If I'm just piggybacking on a fifty million dollar raise. It's a different. It's a different type of strategy. I don't say it's bad or, or worse. It's a different type of strategy. Right. It's not mine. Um, so would you invest in Uber right now? Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, that's what but, I thought. <laughs> but there are some people, like take Peter Thiel as an example. Great investor, mm -hmm. brilliant guy, one of the top ten smartest guys who's been on my podcast. Um, his strategy is to invest in companies only when they have a billion dollar plus valuation, because his argument is. If their valuation is is that high already, first off, that means there's there's a lot of professional investors who've done a lot of hard work right. valuing this company and and understanding it and understanding the industry and understanding the trends and understanding the competitors. Second, 
there's a lot of incentive for all of these very smart and very well-connected investors to keep that valuation above a billion or get the company sold. Mm -hmm. And that works. That strategy works. So if a company's worth a billion and, uh-oh, it looks like things are ha trouble, call up our buddies at Google or Facebook or whatever, buy this for $3 billion. Okay, you know, Google's worth a trillion, $3 billion is hardly is that three tenths sense. of 1%. Yeah. You know, so, so that's a different strategy and that works too. That's a way to mitigate the risk too. Mm -hmm. My best way of mitigating risk is to have, be in a $4 million round where someone like Peter Thiel is my co-investor. So right. then I like got the best of every world. Yeah. Low valuation, the best investor, I don't have to think. So knowing who else is invested in the company is important. I won't invest without knowing who else is invested. Mm -hmm. If I'm the main investor that they're counting on, yeah. that is a shitty company. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't invest. Right. Okay. But so that's how I would lose all my money before. I would get greedy. Like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to take over a third of this company. I'm going to invest a huge amount of money. So right. I take over a, a, and... And then six months later, oh, we just ran out of money. Can, we, can you write more checks? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there's no one to turn to. The CEO of Uber, he's probably taking a pretty generous salary. Uh, no, I think he's not even the CEO. Oh, the current CEO is not the founder, mm -hmm. right? The founder left. Um, Did the uh, founder get bought out? Um, well, at the $120 billion level, SoftBank came in and bought out anybody who wanted to get bought out. So, But we don't know who got bought out or not. Okay. Some of my friends got bought out. If you put in $25,000 into the seed round and you got bought out, you, you got bought out for $125 million. Yikes. And it's still not profitable. No. It's, it's not going to be profitable for a long time. Yeah. And many things could change Yeah, with technology and everything. Okay. We got to wrap this up. So your comedy tour coming up in uh, June? June, yeah. doing um, And I'm not trying to promote it here, but doing California, Boston, Cleveland. But then in the that's really just a test run for the fall. Mm -hmm. So you're doing your podcast and a stand-up set. Yeah, I'm doing a stand-up set and then podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Um, and these will be listed on your website, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we we have to. I was just reminded yesterday. We have to start promoting it. Mm -hmm. we, we started. We did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. I mean, I could just go on and on, but uh, well, we could do another one sometime about just about uh, comedy because I could just we could probably just talk for hours about stand-up comedy, but because that is like my obsession right now. That's my that's that's uh, you know I, I I put a lot of time into thinking about that because again learning how to learn I feel that one skill I got out of anything is just like I mentioned with games learning how to learn mm -hmm. how to take the ten thousand hours I learned from some other area and translate it into this has helped me a lot yeah. and so sometimes people say to me oh you can't skip the line you know you gotta you know, it's just like people saying about politics. Oh, you got to first be a congressman, then a senator, then a vice president, then a governor, then a vice president, and president. Uh, no, if you're if you're good at understanding how to skip the line, like Barack Obama was, yeah. Um, that that skill set of skipping the line applies to many areas. So you you know you've probably heard it in comedy. Either you, people hear it in writing, people hear it in TV, people hear it in entrepreneurship. You can't skip the line. But you can if you know how to do it. Mm. Like, for example, a lot of people, when they start comedy, they'll start a bar show. It's yeah. like, just get more stage time. You skip the line by buying stand-up New York. Well, that, <laughs> that's true. That helped me. But I've also done bar yeah. shows. I've done that. Of course, yeah. Here's another thing I've but done. But you want to guarantee yourself stage time because that's right. the only way to get better. Right. So, so, so owning a bar doesn't guarantee me stage time, by the way, because I always tell the booker, if I'm no good, do not book me. And there has been times where I have not been booked, where my material, I was changing material, 
and it was rough. Uh-huh. So there have been times where I was sweating it out. Am I gonna, just like any other comedian? Am I going to get booked at my own club? People would say to me, "It's your own club. Just just force them." <laughs> and I'm like, "No, I'm. I will never ever do that." Uh-huh. And um, so I'll go up at other clubs sometimes more than my own club right um because then also it proves to other comedians that i'm not just getting stage time yeah because it's my club but i've even done i've done bar shows where i've rented out a bar and and you know opened it up and i've done i've even to be because i've done a lot of public speaking um, and writing i'm good at storytelling and humorous storytelling but i wanted to get good at one-liners um so i even have gone on a subway car and done stand up to a very uh, you know, un, unhappy audience yes. to have tight one-liners. And if I can get them to laugh, boom, I've got it. And then I would switch cars every stop. Mm-hmm. So How'd uh, that go? Um, well, I, I can't say I really did well, but it was a good way to learn. Yeah. So I did get some one-liners and learn something about doing one-liners, which is a different skill than doing stand-up, really. But uh, And then the, there's other things I've had on... 20 comedians on the podcast and i'm not just saying hey you know how you doing today i'm 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 thinking about what happened to me the night before and i'm and i say to them suppose this happened to you when you're on stage what would you do and i get i get like lessons how often do i get like let's say some of the best comedians in the world like let's say sebastian maniscalco giving me one-on-one coaching Mm -hmm. on comedy i'm I'm just asking him about my own comedy experiences and he's telling me everything he would do yeah so it's amazing or or like like with burke kreischer oh say you have a joke like this you know and you're getting laughs like and you feel like there's something more what would you do and on the fly he would come up with like more tags and this and that Mm -hmm. and that's like a great joke for me now those are my favorite episodes of your podcast oh thank you you got good tips like gary goldman was great yeah he's been on three times he's Mm -hmm. been amazing yeah he sounded way better this last time. yeah that was good he's in good shape yeah thanks a lot for doing this gary thank you so much for having me on i hope we can do this again as a great conversation and um uh crystal lake on on sundays every sunday find... night crystal lake brooklyn 7 30 p.m i'm wondering if i'm doing anything you're probably booked this sunday night uh can i do the sunday after i'm not trying to hold you to anything i'm just absolutely well i'll check out the booking thing but absolutely definitely. all right yeah cool thank you yeah thanks Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.